I was listening to an, an interview a, a few weeks ago um, with somebody who it wasn't famous to me, but is apparently um, well known in the sort of American uh, Christian world. Is like a Christian musician, uh, very successful in that world, very popular, who has deconstructed his faith. So you might have come across this um, phrase that, that is becoming increasingly common: the people who've grown up um, in the church uh, then say they are deconstructing uh, their faith. Um, and on one hand, it can be there can be positive aspects to it of sort of trying to break down what is actually true about God and what was just the culture that they were brought up in. Uh, But often it ends up with people abandoning um, God entirely. And that's what's happened with this person. And um, he was saying that one of the things that had started to sort of break down his his faith and his trust in God um, was that he'd encountered more suffering. He said in the life that he'd lived up like throughout his sort of teen years and his 20s, he hadn't encountered much suffering and then as he started, he got into his 30s and started to be, just become aware of a lot more suffering around him, um, he just couldn't believe it. He just he said, I don't understand how uh, God can allow this suffering. And the thing that really struck me, that, that's like a, a common sort of question that I know we talk about a lot here. The thing that struck me was, he said, it's just like nobody's asking that question. Why is nobody asking that question? And I thought, well, it is definitely a question. It's a, a serious question. It's something that we need to think about. But it's definitely not true that nobody's asking that question. Um, People have wrestled with the idea of how can a good God allow suffering for um, a long time. And I thought, I wonder why he's saying nobody's asking that question. Then as he told his story, I think it became clear that what his experience had been was, you know, he grew up in a a big sort of exciting church, was part of the youth group and had a lot of friends there. And he he loved the the stories about Jesus. He loved hanging around with his friends. And then he sort of transitioned into being a, a sort of touring musician. And every night was like, um, just so exciting and people praising God and just everything was like just an ultimate high um, and it just had been that in his experience he hadn't encountered that question of how could a good God um, allow this suffering and so then when he came up against it it really shook what he thought was the foundations of his faith because he just hadn't been exposed to that question he was saying nobody's asking this question that's not true like, I'm, 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 not, I'm not trying to disrespect his, his journey, like, that, that's his story. But it's not true that nobody's asking that question. It is true that in the world that he sort of came up with, in the culture that he came up with, he hadn't experienced people asking that question. And that's not really the question that we're asking today. Sorry if that's uh, sort of got you to think at all. I want to uh, dig further into that. But what, why I thought about that with reading this is, here it's just one of the examples where we see um, the Israelites and we see Moses really, like, struggling like struggling to believe that God is going to do what he's saying. And I, one of the things that I really like about the Bible is it doesn't try to hide the suffering of God's people, the difficulties of God's people. Um, and that could be where they haven't really done anything wrong, but they're being oppressed, like where they're in slavery here. Yeah? But also when they do do things wrong, the Bible doesn't try and cover up um, like people's failures and, and sin. It's not just all sort of like hype and excitement and everything's going to be brilliant. It addresses the difficulties of, of life. Even with the heroes like Moses, who's like one of the greatest sort of heroes in the Bible, what we see here is Moses really doubting again and struggling again. It shows God's people exactly as they are and how, how we are now. And we've said a few times about the Exodus story that it's like one of the most told and retold stories over the history of the Jewish people. They still do it now regularly. Um, they retell the story to their children who are coming up and they're, just, they're exposed constantly to this story. And it's not like a sort of 
um, Instagram filtered type version of the story. Like it includes things where the people are disbelieving God. Moses is accusing God. It includes all of that. It includes the suffering. It's a real picture of like how God interacts in real life. Um, and so that's what we what we come into today. And so where we left it was um, the Israelites were in slavery. Um, Moses encounters God in the desert. God speaks to him at a burning bush and says, I'm going to send you back um, to Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh uh, to let the people go so they can come and worship me in the desert. And he tells Moses in advance that Pharaoh's not going to respond well to that. Anyway, Moses comes back and he meets the Israelites and says, this is what God said. And they, they chuffed about it. They, they bow down and worship. But then Moses goes and sees Pharaoh and Pharaoh's not having any of it, and he then, what he does is he makes the work harder for the Israelites. So he says they've got to make the same amount of bricks as they were making before, but now they've got to gather their own straw as well, where previously it had been provided. So it actually, things actually get worse for the Israelites. And so just in the bit that before where we started uh, reading, then these people who, uh, just a, a chapter earlier, were, were delighted with the, the message that Moses and Aaron were going to bring to Pharaoh, are now accusing Moses and Aaron of making life worse for them. It says just in the, just looking down there at verse uh, 21, where it says, May the Lord look on you and judge you. This is the Israelites to Moses. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh, and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So the people accuse Moses, and what does Moses do? Well, Moses then accuses God, and that's where we started reading in verse 22. He's saying, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people. You have not rescued your people at all. So things haven't gone immediately planned, even though the God said, look, Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. They were presumably expecting this thing to go, like, go down pretty well straight away. And it hasn't. It's got worse. And so the people are kicking off with Moses. Moses is kicking off with God. I just I love the way that God is so patient with Moses here. Doesn't even really rebuke him at all. He just speaks to him and, and answers him. So I think we can get a lot from this. As when it seems like God's abandoned us, because you may feel like that now, you certainly will feel like that at some point. When it feels like, oh, things are getting worse, not better here. I feel like I'm obeying God and things are getting worse, my life's getting harder. When you find yourself maybe accusing other people or accusing God of letting you down, like what would be God's answer to you in, in those moments when you're so frustrated, everything's getting worse and you're accusing God, you've abandoned me, you've let me down, you haven't done what you said you were going to do. Well, I think we can learn from Moses' answer, sorry, God's answer to Moses here, what God would say to us when we were in that situation. And his answer, I think, can be summarised really easily. His answer is, I am the Lord. He says it four times in, his, in, in, in this uh, section. When he's telling Moses what to go back and um, say to the Israelites, that starts with the phrase, I am the Lord. It ends with the phrase, I am the Lord. He says it repeatedly in this, I am the Lord. The number one thing that Moses needs to know when he feels like this plan is just totally, not only hasn't worked, it's made things worse, and he's accusing God and the people don't believe the number one thing that they need to know in that situation is that God is God, that he is the Lord. That's what Moses needs to know here. That's what the Hebrews need to know. That's what we need to know. We need to remember that he is the Lord. Now, what does it look like to remember that he's the Lord? I think there's at least three things we can see uh, from God's answer that, that help us to understand that he, he is the Lord. 
The first one is, what defines like he is the Lord is that he keeps his promises. So he reminds Moses of all the things that he's promised to do. He reminds Moses that he's the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. That's the origins of this people. This nation now of like a million people or something started off with God choosing Abraham and saying, I'm going to make you into this, uh, your, your descendants are going to be uh, too many to count and that you're going to be this great nation that's blessed to um, show what God is like to the rest of the world. And God reminds Moses that he's that God. I'm the God that chose Abraham and brought him out from his people and gave him those promises. Isaac and Jacob, the next generations um, of, of that family. He made a promise to those people and this is him carrying it out. He's the same God. And what he said he's going to do, he'll do. He links to the promises in the past. He also restates the promises that he's made to Moses and the people now. He talks again about what he said. He reminds them again, I've heard the cry of their distress. I've, um, I'm going to free them. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to bring them out of slavery. He reminds them of that promise. So to know that God is God, to know that he is the Lord, is to remember that he keeps his promises. If he said something, he's going to do it. He's made those promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's made those specific promises to these people about their situation in slavery. And if he said he's going to do that, he is going to do it. He keeps his promises. So if we are struggling, if we think, my life's getting harder here, not better, but God's abandoned me, what's God going to do when I'm trying to obey and he's not helping me? We need to remember that he is the Lord, he keeps his promises. Any promise that he's made, he will keep. It's not, it's not a question like, will he do this one, will he not? Um, he will do it. We started looking through some of the, the, the promises specifically that Jesus made. And he promised rest to those who come to him. Like he's promised that, like that's a promise. He, he, he keeps that promise. He's promised abundant life to those who follow him. He's promised eternal life to those who trust him. He's promised that we'll be clothed with power from on high, clothed with power uh, through the Holy Spirit. He's promised that he'll return. Other promises just um, in the, the New Testament um, that we can think, that, that we can remind that uh, God has made these promises to us and he won't go back on them. He's promised that when we believe in Jesus, we'll be saved. It's the same as he's saying here to the Israelites, I am going to bring you out of uh, slavery. He said to us, we are saved from our sins. He was saved from the, the penalty of, of death through belief in Jesus. He's promised, um, the classic in, in Romans 8, he's promised that all things will work out uh, for our good. That is a promise that he's made. He's not going to go back on that. He keeps his promises. That's what he means, that he is the Lord. He's promised comfort in our trials. He's promised to finish the work that he started in us. That's a promise. He's not going to go back on that. He's made that promise. That is what's going to happen. He's promised to supply all our needs. So when we're struggling, when we feel like God's abandoned us, when we feel like things are going wrong, we can start by just reminding ourselves that God keeps his promises. Anything that he said he'll do, he will do. It's not like anybody else making a promise. Somebody else might make a promise and they might be really, really intending to keep that promise, but it might be factors outside their control that mean they can't. There's no factors outside of God's control, so he will never not keep a promise that he's made. So to know that God is God, that he is the Lord, means that we know he keeps his promises. The second one is that he's got a mighty hand. He reminds God, uh, sorry, God reminds Moses that he's fully in control here. 
So he refers to his mighty hand a few times. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Because of my mighty hand, Pharaoh will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Um, verse 6, at the end of verse 6, where he's telling Moses what to go back and say to the Israelites, he says, I'll free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That mighty hand and that outstretched arm becomes a sort of theme that they, they often talk about then when looking back on this event. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, when there's instructions about how they should remember these events when they get to the promised land, um, they should say these words. The Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labour. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He keeps singing about this in the, in the Psalms, hundreds of years later, singing about God's enduring love. Um, in Psalm 136, just a few verses from there where it says, To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. He brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. This mighty hand, this outstretched arm of God, he's fully in control. He's going to bring them out because he's powerful. He's mighty. There's nothing more powerful than God's mighty arm. It's not like an arm wrestle between God and Pharaoh. Like God's arm's mighty. It's no contest. There's a brilliant bit in, in Numbers where the, the Israelites are having another difficulty and Moses is not happy and God says to Moses, is my arm too short to save? It's like a brilliant rhetorical question to which the answer is no. God's arm is not too short to save. His arm's powerful. His, might, his, arm, his arm is mighty. This mighty hand, the outstretched arm. He's got the longest, mightiest arms going, if that image helps you. He's powerful. He's in control of everything. He's just reminding Moses that he will, like, it doesn't matter what Pharaoh's going to do, he is going to bring them out with his mighty arm. So to remember that God is God, that he is the Lord, we remember that he keeps his promises, we remember that he's got a mighty hand. And the third one is that we remember that he is a redeemer. Verse 6 and 7, he says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with this outstretched arm and mighty act of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. God is their redeemer. To redeem something is to sort of buy something back, to take possession of something. I think somebody gets you a gift voucher or something for your birthday, and what you're doing when you redeem it is you're cashing it in to like get something. You're taking the, the value into your, your possession. Now, this is much higher stakes than that because God is redeeming them from slavery. He's freeing them from being enslaved, this brutal slavery that we've been uh, reading about. But it's also more, it's not just higher stakes than us redeeming a, a voucher. It's much more personal. It's not just a cold transaction. God says he will redeem you. Like that's taking them out of slavery, but it's taking them into something. Verse 7, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. He's taking them out of slavery, redeeming them out of slavery. He's taking possession of them. He's taking them into his own presence and possession. He'll take them as his own people and be their God. They're being taken out of slavery into that uh, relationship of being in God's presence. That um, That's what the purpose of their nation is. You might remember the story of uh, Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth in the Bible, which is another great picture of this personal uh, redeemer that you get. 
and you've got Ruth and uh, mother-in-law Naomi who are in a very vulnerable position and Boaz redeems them. It's not just a transaction where he takes possession of the land that belongs to their family, it includes that. But he takes Ruth and Naomi into his family. He marries Ruth. By redeeming them, he's taking them out of their vulnerable position and into a relationship with him, into a personal, intimate relationship with him. That's what God's doing here. He's taking them out of slavery, but just like out of slavery and off you go, out of slavery into relationship with him, into his presence. God is their redeemer. That's what it means to remember that he is the Lord, is that he's their redeemer. He's also our redeemer. In Galatians chapter 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That's showing how we fit into this picture. He redeemed us. He's taken us out from the curse of uh, sin into the blessing that belongs to Abraham, the same blessing that they were being redeemed into. That we become his people. We're in relationship with him. It says in the next chapter of Galatians, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to some sonship. Again, that's shown that we've been redeemed into something, into his family. It's like adoption there, into his family. It's this relational redemption. It's taking them out of something, and that's absolutely brilliant, but it's also taking them into something. It's taking them into relationship with him. So Moses thinks everything's going wrong. The people think everything's going wrong. And God's answer is to say that I am the Lord. What does it mean that he's the Lord? It means he's going to keep his promises that he's made to their ancestors and that he's made to them. It means that he's in control. He's got a mighty hand. He can do anything regardless of what Pharaoh wants to happen. And it's remembering that he's their redeemer. He's freeing them from slavery and he's going to take them into his own presence, into relationship with him. Unfortunately, verse 9 says that he reported this to the Israelites, but they didn't listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. Those are things that do make it listen difficult to, to trust God. Discouragement, hard labour, they make it hard to trust God, they obscure who he is and what he's doing. That's true for them then, it's also true for us now. What do you need to do if you find yourself discouraged? That might be you this afternoon, feeling discouraged, just worn down from like the hard labour of the world. Well, you need to remember that God is God. Remember that he keeps his promises. Remember that he's in control, he's got a mighty hand. Remember that he's, he's your redeemer. Now, I feel like I could stop there, but I want to do something about the, the other bit, the genealogy, so we'll, we'll keep going, because I think the, sh the focus then shifts. Like that's just I love that section where God just answers patiently, um, but forcefully about who he is and what he's going to do. And the focus there is on exactly that, who God is, who God says he is, who he's revealed himself to be and what he's going to do. The focus in the, the second sort of part of this then moves on to Moses and Aaron. So God says to Moses again, like Moses reported this back to the Israelites, they're, they're not listening because they're, they're discouraged. And then God says to Moses in verse uh, 10 again, in verse 11, right, go back to Pharaoh and sort of say the same thing again. 
And Moses brings out the same like problem with that. Why is he going to listen to me? I've got faltering lips. I can't uh, speak very well. Your people won't even listen to me, so why do we expect Pharaoh to listen to me? He's discouraged. He's doubting. Then we get this little interlude of the family record of Moses and Aaron. You've got to think from the position of the Hebrews, the Israelites, these are just two blokes who wandered in from the desert saying, oh, God's going to save you from slavery. And maybe that sounded brilliant, but now it hasn't really worked out like that. You can imagine them sort of starting to question, like, what, like who are these two? Um, what are they doing? This genealogy uh, links Moses and Aaron um, with the past and with the future. It's obviously being written after these events. It links Moses and Aaron with the tribe of Levi. Established that that's one of the, uh, the tribes, the original tribes, the, the sons of uh, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, the original tribes of Israel. Um, it establishes them in the tribe of Levi. And then it also goes forward, particularly with Aaron's descendants. It goes down to um, Aaron's uh, grandchildren. And they go on to be the first priests. And so as people are looking back at this from the time where um, the priestly system is established and, you know, the nation's out of slavery, and they're looking back on these stories, this little interlude just really connects Moses and Aaron with the past, like where they've come from in God's people, and with the priests who would have been operating at the time of this being written. In verse 26 and 27, the writer here goes to great lengths to say, like, it was this Moses and Aaron, like the ones who we've just given you their family tree, it was this Moses and Aaron who God said this to. And then at the end of verse 27, this same Moses and Aaron, like they're going to great lengths here to make it clear that these were the two people who were involved. Then it picks back up in the story in verse 28 and 30, is pretty much just a, a repeat of the bit before the genealogy of God telling them to go and uh, Moses saying, look, I can't, I can't speak well, why will he listen to me? And then God just reminds him again, look, I've, I've sent Aaron to speak to you. I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh. Like You speak to him. Aaron speaks your words. Like This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring people out. He's just restating what he's going to do. But then I just wanted to finish by with verses 6 and, verses six and 7 because they just really stood out to me uh, this week in particular. Really, the last just few days, really, verse 6 and 7 of have stood out to me uh, a lot. Where it says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. It's just stood out to me here that here they are, two old blokes who just, they, they just obeyed God. They weren't sure. Like, we don't know about Aaron, so I don't want to treat him unfairly, but we know that Moses definitely wasn't sure about what was going on here. Like, he's questioning God, he's still giving excuses, but he still just obeys. Now, I just think that's inspirational. An 80-year-old, an 83-year-old, like, they're not sure, has God abandoned this? Is this really right? But they just continue to obey. Moses was saying to God that he doesn't expect this to work. Like, how many, how many conversations have you had like that with God where you said, oh, I'm not sure that this is the right thing. How, how is this going to work? But he continues to obey anyway. That's sometimes what the Christian life looks like. It's like one, one day Jesus... Uh, uh, teaches the crowds and they don't like what he says and it says like loads of people abandon him and he turns to the disciples and says are you going as well and Peter says well where else can we go you've got the words of eternal life I just think it sounds like Peter's not sure like if there was a better option he might consider going at that point but where else are we going to go because you've got the words of eternal life and I feel like this is what Moses is doing here he's really unsure he's saying to God look this isn't working like this isn't happening like I can't I still can't speak why is he going to listen to me when the people won't listen but ultimately 
he's been spoken to by the one who has the word of eternal life, so he, he continues to obey. It can be easy to obey when times are easy, but what's going what, what's to happen when times are difficult and you're not sure and you think things are going wrong? That's what Moses does now, but he did just as the Lord commanded him. The obedience from Moses and Aaron here is just, right, we're going we're gonna to go back, we're going to keep going back. It doesn't seem like it's working, but we're going to keep going back because that's what God said to do. I just think that's inspirational obedience from a couple of 83-year-olds, well, an 80-year-old and 83-year-old. Now, I'm going to speak about old people in general here now, people of that sort of age. Um, if you're older than me, feel free to just roll your eyes and say he doesn't know what he's talking about, that's fine. Um, but I think, in, I'm making massive generalisations here, but I think you tend to, obviously you get loads of people who don't fall into these, either of these categories, but you'll recognise these categories of old people in a church if you've been around churches for any length of time. You've got some people who don't like anything that's happening and will just let you know about it all the time. They're in a mood about absolutely everything, whether it's the music, the sermon, the tea towels, like whatever it is, is a problem and they're going to let you know about it. That is one type of old person in the church. There's another category of people who just humbly like ooze like wisdom and like just want to pray for you and, and that sort of thing. That reminds me of Ian's uh, grandma. Peggy used to be like that in our, our old church. I won't name people who I know in the first category. Um, now, obviously, there's loads of people who won't fit into either of those categories. You can be like that even if you're a younger person. So I, I get that. But I'm just talking about old people who have experience. Now, I definitely have the natural propensity to become the person in the first category. I can imagine myself, if Grace Church is still around when I'm 80, saying, you know, this music just sounds like noise. Um, look, I wouldn't have done it like this. What they do? Like, I could just be that person. I know I could be. I'm desperate not to become that person. So I've said to Lisa before, please don't let me become that person. If you're still around when I'm 80 and you're still in contact with me um, and you see me doing anything like that, just remind me of this, if you can remember it yourself. Um, I, 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 I don't want to be that person. I want to be like Moses and Aaron, who might be thinking, oh, I'm not sure whether this is right, but I'm, I'm obedient to God, right? I'm just going to do what God's told me to do. That's what I want to be doing at 80 and 83. I mean, it's a much lower status example that I'm going to talk about here than what they were doing. But I, I often think back to this example. Uh, we were at um, a different Christian conference, Word Alive, a good few years ago, and they have two evening meetings. And the first one's sort of the adult celebration, and the later one is the student celebration. And that's got the music a bit louder, a bit livelier. There's more banter from the stage. Um, and we always used to go to that one just because we preferred it. And this was one of the first times we went, and I just noticed a few rows ahead of us, like an old, like a, an elderly sort of person in there. Looked a bit out of place in the, the student celebration, probably so did I, but maybe not as much as him. He was wearing like smart clothes, he looked a bit uncomfortable, he didn't seem to really like the music, he didn't get the student banter, which I will say this year when I went to one of the student celebrations, I thought, I don't really get the student banter, so maybe I'm now moving into a different uh, category of age. Anyway, he just... It just didn't seem like, it seemed like it was a bit too loud for me. It just seemed like, why was he there? But the reason he was there was, he was stood next to his teenage grandson. It's making me feel quite emotional, I don't quite know why. Um, but I just think about that picture. He didn't really enjoy it. He probably would have preferred the other one. But he just, well, I mean, obviously I'm, I never spoke to him, so I'm just imagining what was there. But he just took seriously... The, the call in his life to um, pass on uh, the message of Jesus to um, the generations after him. 
he took seriously that call and so he obeyed. And I just think that's a great sort of inspiration from Moses and Aaron either. Moses certainly is not sure about what's going on. Um, he doesn't necessarily think that obeying God is like the, the most sensible thing to do or even the right thing to do. He's questioning God at every point. But when it comes down to it, he obeys and he, he goes back. I'll just finish with this uh, quote from John Piper on, on getting old. And he says, Growing old to the glory of God means using whatever strength and eyesight and hearing and mobility and resources, whatever of those we have left, to treasure Christ. And in that joy, to serve people. That is to seek to bring them with us into the everlasting enjoyment of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, I couldn't find the exact quote, but he said something about uh, God kisses away the fears of aging with his promises. And that brings us back to where we started, which is to know that God is God. So let's just, let's just pray. I haven't got a strong finish there. I don't know what I'm saying, but let's just pray and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, continue to reflect on that.